So I want to welcome everyone to uh, this last course seminar of Why Do We Trust the Bible? So this is the last session of the series of Why We Trust the Bible. And let's see if I can... We've been through really a whole series of things. We first looked at the inspiration of the, of the scriptures, whether they're inerrant or not, whether they're, they can be trusted, whether they're based on historical fact, and where did the books of the Bible come from? What, how did the canon form? Brad covered all, the, all these things. And then over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at, from those early books of the Bible, how is it transmitted down to us? And finally, today, we're going to be looking at, why are there so many translations? I think all of us basically have asked that question of, we all have a version of the Bible we read, but we run into other people who have different versions. Or we get frustrated when a preacher or a Sunday school teacher uh, uses a different version from the one we're using in the pew. Or we grew up memorizing scripture from one version of the Bible where it's really familiar with us. And the other translations just don't sound right at all. Or perhaps you have went to buy a a Bible in a, in a store or online, and you're kind of going, well, what version should I buy? So that's the question we're going to be looking at today, is how did the Bible come down to us, and what's the best translation for us? What version should we read? What versions should we trust? Those are all good questions, but... One of the problems with, with Bible translations is there's a lot of heat over light, or light over heat. And that is people get pretty worked up about what version of the Bible they're using. And that all boils down to the different manuscripts that we talked about last time. And different translations or different versions come from different manuscripts, as you'll see in the, in the next couple of minutes. And that's why there are a number of different, different versions there. So we're not here to really debate which is the very best version and, and get into arguments about that. That's the heat. But to set, shed some light on, on, on where the scriptures are coming from and which ones are best for us and which ones are good and faithful to God's word. So again, we're building from that argument of looking at uh, the inspiration, the inerrancy of scriptures, the historical facts, the canon, the transmission, and now what translation we're, we're using. The other thing that we're not going to get into is I'm not talking about different versions of the Bible. So if you go into a Christian bookstore or go online, you'll see all different types of Bibles that come in different shapes and formats. There are really thick Bibles you can buy or thin ones or pocket versions, ones with study notes all over the place or cross-references. 
Those are all different versions of this of a translation. What we're focused on today is the different translations that have come down to us and and working through there. So that begs the question, why are there so many translations? But as we've talked about in the past, let's first talk about criticisms of all, all of this with, uh, with the translations. You've seen this slide several times over the course of this seminar. Uh, Dan Brown, who wrote the Da Vinci Code, Why is the Bible changed over time? And he says the Bible has evolved through countless translations and editions and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the Bible. Another critic in Newsweek uh, basically says the Bible is misunderstood. No television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician or the Pope or I or you. At best, we've all read a bad translation, a translation of a translation of a translation of hand-copied copies of copies of copies and on hundreds of times. So those are critics that are really outside of the church. We even critics inside of the church. Uh, Gail Ripplinger wrote this book called The New Age Bible Versions. And if you can read the fine print at the very bottom, it says this is an exhaustive documentation exposing the message, the men, and the manuscripts moving mankind to the Antichrist, one world's religion. The case against, and they, she lists a whole ton of different translation, and it says this book is about the latest research supporting the authorized King James Version. So this is a book where a fellow believer has written saying the King James Version is the only version you should read, and everything else is a result of the Antichrist or the devil. So there's lots of critics out there about translations, and again, we want to get through all that and begin looking at what is, um, what are good, what, what's going on with translations. So first of all, why do we need different translations? Well, first of all, it's hard to learn the biblical languages. If you ask any pastor who's gone to seminary, what were some of the hardest courses they have to deal with? <clears throat> They'd probably say Greek and Hebrew, learning the Greek and Hebrew languages. <laughs> and that's because that's what the biblical languages were first written in and pastors use that as a tool to help them as they prepare their sermons and messages they have a tool to, to understand what those scriptures are really saying and the fact is is that God chose to reveal the scriptures in a language other than the one we speak and so to Either to learn the scriptures, either we have to learn those original languages, study Greek and Hebrew, or we have to rely on translations. God revealed all of the New Testament in the language of Hebrew, and there are a couple books, um, uh, Daniel and Ezra, that were also in Aramaic. And that's because it was the language of the Hebrew people at the time, and Aramaic was the trade language used during that time, especially during the Babylonian cap captivity. He also chose to reveal his, his gospel through the Greek language in the New Testament because 
when Alexander the Great conquered the Mediterranean world in 33 uh, BC, or 333 BC, Greek became the main language that everyone used. And the version of the Greek that was used at the time was called Kone Greek because it was the common Greek language. And it was a simpler version of the classical Greek that was spoken um, uh, in, in antiquity. So looking at this, we see the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, the New Testament in Greek, and we need translations to come from that. If we look at the Muslim uh, or, or Islam, they basically say that the Quran was written in Arabic, and in order to truly hear God's word of the Quran, as, as, as they say, you've got to You've got to understand Arabic to do it. So they require their people to, to, to know Arabic to be able to, to read the Bible. Similarly, the Jews um, <clears throat> learn Hebrew so they can understand their Bible. But Christians are different in that they believe that translations uh, can still be done. You can still hear God's word through translation. And in fact, the New Testament authors many times were quoting from the Greek translation of the, <clears throat> of the Old Testament when they, um, when they were writing the New Testament. So it, <clears throat> it's, you know, it is difficult to understand and learn the uh, biblical languages, and fortunately, we're allowed to um, basically uh, to rely on translations. Secondly, it's also hard to read biblical manuscripts. And one of the, the earliest thing is that the early Hebrew manuscripts were written with no vowels. So can you imagine reading a book where you open up the cover and there are no A-E-I-O's and U's at all. They're just, they're just consonants. And you have to, you have to put together uh, what those words mean. And later on, Hebrew was written with vowels, and those are those dots and dashes that are intersposed among the characters there. So it it's, uh, wasn't a trivial thing to, uh, to work with. Then we go to the New Testament, and the New Testament doesn't look anything like um, what, what we have today. The Greek New Testament basically was done in all caps, and it had no spaces between the words. So it was just a series of letters that you had to interpret. So basically, um, it, it, we are so used to reading uh, the scriptures where if it's a capital S in spirit, it means the Holy Spirit. If it's a small s, it means someone else's spirit. In Greek, you didn't have that issue. You had to, in the context, read and understand what, uh, what things meant because of the, the lack of capitalization. The other thing, if you notice, in these early Greek manuscripts is there aren't any chapter headings or verse numbers. Those were added much, much later on in the 13th and 16th centuries. So for centuries, there was basically, um, there was basically uh, the Greek as it stands, and uh, people had to work through it uh, as it was written. And the last reason of why we need translations 
hard to learn biblical languages, hard to read manuscripts. It's hard to reach the world's nations. The Great Commission calls us to take the gospel to every nation, to every tongue and tribe in the world. And that's really difficult to do if you're asking them to learn Greek and Hebrew. That's not going to happen. So Christians for centuries, well, for a long time, have been working to translate the Bible into uh, the world's languages. Uh, Wycliffe Translators is the most prominent example of this, where they sent out uh, teams of missionaries throughout the world to translate the Bible into different languages. And you'll see from this fact sheet up here that roughly one out of five people are waiting for the Bible to be translated in their languages. There are over 7,000 languages spoken in the world, but only 717 have been fully translated into languages. Now, fortunately, that covers basically 80% of the world's population, but we still have a large number of languages that need to be translated so that those people can hear the word of God in their own language. So that is the work of Wycliffe translators, and they are uh, actively pursuing that. So let's now dive into the history of translations. As I mentioned just a minute ago, the first translation that we know of is the Septuagint, which is the, the, the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And it was likely that's the Bible that Christ used when he, when he was quoting from it. And it was translated roughly 200 years from the 3rd to the 1st century B.C., so just before the time of Christ is when this Greek translation um, came about. And that's because... Um, Jews were moving out from Israel itself into areas um, where where the uh, the Greek Empire was, and there needed to be a way for those Jews to be able to understand their scriptures in the language that they spoke. And it's called the Septuagint because it's the Latin word for 70. And according to tradition... That came about because the pharaoh of Egypt at the time wanted a copy of the Jewish scriptures uh, to add to his big, big uh, library in Alexandria. And so he summoned 70 translators to come to Egypt, make that translation. And the amazing thing, or miraculous thing, as he claimed, is that they all arrived at the exact same translation. And so that's how the word of God was blessed, according to that tradition that we, we've heard. So takeaway from here is the Septuagint just means 70. After that came the Latin Vulgate. And we heard about that from Dr. Wright during a Reformation conference that the, um, the Bible was translated from Greek into Latin because from the Roman Empire on, Um, Latin was the trade language uh, spoken throughout the world. And this translation was done in in roughly 400 AD, and it was done from the original language. So from Greek and Hebrew, the Latin Vulgate was was created. And the word Vulgate, you're saying, well, where, where did that come from? That just means common, because it was the common 
translation or the common Bible for centuries all the way until the Reformation. And actually, it is still, again, Dr. Wright pointed this out, it's still the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church. And they say all authority for all matters and doctrine and um, dispute come from this, this Latin version of the Bible. And of note, it was the very first Bible to come off Gutenberg's press in the 14th century. Then we move on to John Wycliffe, um, who was a scholar and pastor in in England during the uh, 14th century, right in the middle of Roman Catholicism. And he basically was frustrated that most people, including priests at the time, could not read Latin. And he was burdened to get God's word out to the common people. So he translated the, the Latin Vulgate into English and began to circulate it around 1382. And there are still 176 copies of his New Testament that survive to this day. Now, <clears throat> John Wycliffe died, well, he was accused of heresy several times during that, during that time, and he actually died before he could officially be condemned and executed. But they were so mad at him that after his death, the Archbishop of Canterbury forbid any translation of the Bible uh, into English, and he ordered Wycliffe's body to be taken up, exhumed, burned, and his ashes dumped in the river. You know, talk about, talk about being mad. Um, so one, one drawback, as I mentioned, is that Wycliffe's Translation was a translation of translation. It went from Hebrew and Greek to Latin Vulgate, then to English. So it was a translation of itself. After, after Wycliffe, we have Wh- William Tyndale. So again, um, during Tyndale's time, it was the Renaissance. There was a flowering of, of um, a, a desire to understand uh, all things from antiquity. And so all sorts of Greek scholars and Greek manuscripts came into the European uh, universities and libraries, uh, specifically Oxford. And, and so basically, um, the first printed Greek New Testament was produced by Erasmus in 1516. And this is the, the basic test, uh, text from all uh, English translations from that time. And Tyndale translated the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into English for the very first time because he wanted every plowboy in England to be able to read the Bible for himself. But Tyndale, like Wycliffe, uh, had opposition. Not after he died, but before he died. He was basically strangled and burned at the stake for, um, for, his, for his work in translating the Bible. And his dying words were, Lord, open up the king of England's eyes. And one year later, after uh, his death, King Henry VIII uh, approved Matthew's version of the Bible. And what the king didn't realize is that Matthew's version was really the Bible that Tyndale produced. So Tyndale did have the last um, laugh at that one. So Tyndale's Bible became the the basis of of 
all of the modern translations of the Bible. And one of the first ones, again, that Dr. Wright mentioned was the Geneva Bible of 1560, and it became the most popular Bible for the next several hundred years. It was the Bible that Shakespeare used, that Pilgrim's Progress was based on, and it's the one that crossed the sea when the Pilgrims came with the Mayflower. It was also the very first Bible to use uh, verse numbers. And from our library, we have this Bible here. So if you ever want to read it, they basically, it's a photocopy of exactly what was printed long ago. So that's up in our library, the Geneva Bible from uh, 1599. So from that, um, in the early 1600s, the monarchy, uh, the English monarchy was going on and the uh, Reformation was brewing and there was a lot of conflict between the Catholics and the Protestants at the time. And King James uh, was crowned in 1603. He held a conference with a group of pastors and they basically said, um, we, we need just one translation to work from, to read to our churches. So at the time, there was the Bishop's Bible that was, was the official translation, but it was pretty unpopular. And King James didn't like, like it because it had study notes that kind of pushed against his rule in the monarchy. So he summoned 47 translators to work on the project, and in 1611, the King James Version, or the authorized version, became the official Bible of of the Church of England. And it, it went through a number of updates, but it is what commonly is available today as the King James Version. Um, but, as with many Bibles, there are some inver- embarrassing variants that happened. And here are a couple of them. One of them <laughs> is in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt commit adultery. Um, that was there, and the unrighteous shall inherit the earth. And let the children first be killed rather than filled. So in any translations, there are issues or problems with variants that happen as they're translated. So let's turn our attention to um, basically some modern translations. And... I got to go through them one at a time. So I'll just go through chronologically. There is the Revised Version, Revised Standard Version that I grew up um, first reading, the New American Standard or NASB that was recently updated, the New International Version, New King James Version, New Revised Standard Version. English Standard Version, which is what we use in our pews here, and the Christian Standard Bible. So those are some modern translations, and the most popular ones are the NIV, the ESV, the New Living Translation, King James, and the New King James Version, and then the Christian Standard Bible. That's just a a rundown of what's popular now, not not to So let's look at the different kinds of translations. How did they develop? 
So one of the first issues was, um, well, there are two basic differences between um, the different versions. One are textual differences, and the other are translation differences. Textual differences really are whether they use early or older manuscripts. So the King James Version that first came out that we just talked about was based on only eight manuscripts uh, in the original Greek. And the oldest goes back to the 11th century. But newer translations are based on 5,500 manuscripts, and they go back to the 2nd century. So in this case, older is not... um, um, Older versions are not better versions because they don't have the scholarship or reaching back to, to, um, to look at the most um, original documents that the uh, scriptures were based on. Brad talked about um, different versions of when... Well, Brad talked about in the last couple of weeks transmission where looking at the Bible sometimes is looking at a thousand-piece uh, puzzle And the question is, you assemble all of this puzzle, but there are a couple missing pieces that go on. And the important thing here is finding the one or two last pieces that go in there, but also realizing that when you look at the puzzle, you're not losing any of the original um, message of the gospel. Uh, I mean, if there's a variation of one or two words as translations or transmission goes along, it's not destroying the overall uh, message. The critics always want to point out those missing pieces, but the thing that we should um, rely on and place our hope on is that the the full picture of the gospel has not been uh, eliminated through that. So what are some of these variants that happen? Well, some of them, as uh, translations go on, uh, people add words where people use the word Jesus and a scribe that's translating it or or doing it adds the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are words added. In some cases, there are phrases added. So for example, in the King James Version, um, it says, in whom we have the redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sins. But in a more modern translation, the NIV, it says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the question is, where did, why did through the, his blood disappear? Well, it probably happened because someone writing the scriptures wanted to harmonize things together uh, and took from Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of sins. So this is an example of a variant, uh, uh, an issue uh, happening where during the transmission or translation of the scriptures, people were inserting words when when they shouldn't have. But again, going back to the earliest scriptures, uh, the earliest manuscripts, uh, we get at what the true original meaning or intent was. We also have added versions or passages. So in 1 John 5, 7, and 8, uh, in the Latin Vulgate, uh, there was an explicit reference made to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Now the Trinity, or the, the, 
the idea of the Trinity wasn't explicitly um, seen in the Bible. And the feeling was is that scribes added this to put that explicit reference in where the earlier manuscripts did not have it at all. Also at the end of Mark, and you'll see this if you pick up one of your Bibles, um, <clears throat> there's a, an account showing Jesus appearing to Mary uh, Magdalene and the Great Commission that, that again, isn't in the earliest, earliest manuscripts, and it was probably added later on. And your Bibles will, will highlight that. And also the whole account of the women caught in adultery, you'll see little uh, indications indicating that this was not in the earliest manuscripts. So those are some of the issues when we look at things that are later in time where variations could occur. So the important thing is going back to the earliest manuscripts and um, and uh, um, basically, uh, you know, basing uh, our, our translations on that. Some other uh, differences are translational differences. Um, and that's the issue where languages develop over, <clears throat> over time, and older doesn't mean better. This is an example from Beowulf. I don't know if you studied that in high school, but it's, um, it's basically a thousand... Um, it's back in, at uh, 1000 AD. And the question is, do you recognize any of these words? This is English, but it's English that neither you or I know anything about. Similarly, if, if you read or looked at the Canterbury Tales, you can see um, this, is, um, this is what Chaucer wrote uh, and then here's a more modern uh, indication. So sometimes as we read the Bible, going back to earlier versions of English don't make things easier to, to, uh, to read. Again, going through different ages of uh, Old English, Middle English, Early Modern English, and Late Modern English, you can see the words change uh, and they're not recon- the early versions are difficult for us to understand. So again, with translation, having an early version of the Bible isn't necessarily better because a more modern translation gives, uh, allows us to have a, a much more um, a coherent understanding of what the message of the scripture is. So again, walking through here, here's uh, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16 from Wycliffe's time, from Tyndale's time. Here's the King James Version uh, back in when it first came out. The Revised Standard Version and then the version we used, um, English Standard Version. So again, um, going back and saying, well, the King James Version is, is the best version. Well, the understanding of reading the King James Version versus the ESV, it's much easier for us to understand what the scriptures are saying to us by looking at a more modern version of the English language. So I'll stop for a second here. Any questions? I'm kind of ripping through history and all that stuff. Yes, Chris. 
wondering, uh, since there are several versions that happened in the last hundred years, several new translations, what, what are some of the motivations that would cause somebody to decide we need a new translation? Okay, um, I think I'll get to that or, or address that as we go on. And here's one more thing of how English words change their meaning. So King James says, for the word of God is quick and powerful, where the ESV says the word of God is living and active. So quick back in King James' day is not fast. It meant living. And powerful was not strength. It meant activity or action. So again, as the translators look at that, they're looking at the context of what what those words really meant. And the English language, as we all know, has uh, changes over time. Now we're going to get into a little bit of um, what's called um, formal versus functional equivalence. So as different versions of the Bible were translated, there, there's a spectrum of, of different uh, philosophies of translating the Bible. One of them is you want a formal equivalent where it's a more word-for-word rendition of what what you see in the scriptures. It's very literal. Um, And an example of that, as you can see in the arrow, is the the NASB, uh, New American Standard Bible. And then on the other side, you have a paraphrase or functional equivalent and it's more meaning-based, where the translations are not aimed at a word-for-word equivalence, but getting the meaning of what's going on. And as I said, there's a spectrum of different translations across that, of how things um, how things work. Uh, let's see. Oops, is this showing up? So, if I, let's, let's get it all on. One issue is translating from the source language, Greek, into the target language, English. And I'm using an example from Spanish. If a Spanish, a Spaniard wanted to say, hello, my name is Tim, he would say, me, me llamo Tim. And that would translate to, my name is Tim. The literal translation of that is, I call myself Tim. It's not, not exactly the same. And actually going the other way, if I were to say to him, my name is Tim, I might say, mi, mi nombre es Tim. And it just doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound exactly right. So there is a difference as we translate from one language to another that has to be taken into account. So an exact literal word for word doesn't always translate the meaning of the scriptures in the most coherent or understandable form. Again, here's an example of uh, differences. The uh, New American Standard Bible says in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I will not be in need, whereas the NIV says, the Lord is my shepherd, I, I lack nothing. Again, I lack nothing is 
is a more, I'll say, easier or less formal way of saying really the same thing. So there are differences in the way the translators approach things based on word-for-word rendition of the source to target language. Similarly, um, words have different meanings. Um, In Matthew 2, Joseph went to the town of Nazareth. In Greek, it's polis. But the same word is used in the two chapters later. The devil took Jesus to Jerusalem, the holy city. So we would translate it town and city. Nazareth was a little rural town. Jerusalem was the big city. Same word in Greek, but it's translated differently. So the the issue is is that, um, I guess what I'm trying to point out is that in, in Bible translation, it's not um, an easy thing just to do a literal translation, a word-for-word translation. Um, you have to take into account the different languages and the different ages of those, of those languages as you translate it. So you can't take out your pocket dic- dictionary or Google Translate and do a word-for-word ch- um, translation to make a Bible. It really relies on people studying what the scriptures mean and, and working out uh, what, what, the best, what the best translation is. So what are the best translations? Well, first of all, these are some recommendations. You don't want to paraphrase. Um, the Living Bible is a, a translation that just captures the meaning of what the um, what the authors wanted the New Testament, and I never knew this, but there's even a cotton patch version, which is a paraphrase where someone went and in Southern American English uh, talked about Jesus being born in Gainesville, Georgia, to his mama. You know, just basically changing the whole context of what um, of what's going on. So you have those kind of paraphrases where they're trying to capture what's going on. Secondly, you probably don't want a Bible that's based on an individual translator. And there are some um, that you know about. There's the Phillips, J.B. Phillips uh, version and the message that was out in the early 2000s. Young, who did uh, the Young's Concordance way back in the uh, 1862, he did a literal Bible where he did a literal word-for-word translation of the Bible. Um, the problem is you're relying on one person, one man, and his interpretation of meaning to, um, uh, to influence how the Bible is written. Sometimes that's helpful, but many times it doesn't accurately capture what's going on. You also don't want a theologically motivated translation. Our, the Jehovah's Witnesses have their New World Translation where they have warped it to match their theology, which is you know, basically uh, heretical. And then you have versions like the New Revised Standard and the Common English Bible that are into the whole gender-inclusive translation where they're, they're leaving out or mixing masculine and feminine pronouns together to be more gender-inclusive. 
So the things that we, we look for in good translations are um, actually um, being done by a committee. Um, normally you think anything done by a committee is something you want to stay away from. <laughs> but in this case, um, being done by a committee is, is probably the best thing because you're getting a number of different scholars together, um, going back to the early, earliest manuscripts, and basically, I won't call bouncing ideas, but merging their collective wisdom together to create um, um, a good translation. So, for example, the NIV was done by 15 different scholars uh, over various denominations. The ESV was done with 50 uh, scholars under Lane Dennis and Wayne Grudem, uh, were part of that translation committee. And the um, um, Common Standard Bible was done with 100 scholars from 17 denominations. And that's one was co-chaired by Tom Schreiner, who spoke to us a year ago uh, during one of our video conferences. So again, as scholars go through piecing together the earliest manuscripts, uh, working together, they can come up with what is the best meaning. Another guideline I think you should have is, is um, a desire to use different translations. Uh, there are times when it's helpful to bring out the NIV and the New American Standard Bible word for word versus more uh, functional and compare what they're saying and understand it as you study God's word. Many times we don't need to do that, but if you're doing an intensive study like preparing a sermon or a Sunday school class, it's sometimes helpful to look at different versions of the Bible, recognizing their different, um, I'll call it origins or philosophies and how they approach things and, um, and learning from that. And finally, another guideline is, is only having one translation per church. So uh, it is confusing when a pastor stands up and starts reading from one version, you're sitting out in the pew and they don't have, you know, you're, you're trying to follow along uh, that's why we've standardized in this church on the ESV and, and other churches on other versions to make things just a little simpler to, uh, to follow. Lastly, I guess I want to say is as we uh, wrap up, well, let me, let me take a break uh, here and answer any questions. Chris, did I answer your question about translation earlier? Um. And the question was, um, why, mostly just in modern times, why did um, they decide to create a new translation, say the ESV, or the, um, I guess it was CSV or something? Yeah. Um, Sometimes it has to do with publishers. So if I'm a Bible publisher and I want to produce a Bible, um, I don't want to pay royalties to another company. That's one motivating factor. The other one is a denomination like the um, the CSV is really produced by Southern, more of a Southern Baptist uh, orientation. They're the ones that funded that. So a denomination wants to have a more standard Bible to work from. Um, the 
New American Standard Bible was done by, I'll call it mainline uh, churches and had a more ecumenical flavor and they wanted to do that. So you had that, I'll, I'll call it different philosophies of what they want to um, push or have in their congregations come up that way. Yeah, BJ? Yeah, I mean, I could just jump in. So, you know, the King James Version was a very standard version that was understandable to the, to the people of that era. Uh, and so as, as time passed and the English language passed, there was need for a new version, given the fact that we use the English language differently. We don't use the word thee, thou, henceforth, I pray thee, let not thy countenance fall, my beloved brother, uh, things like that. Uh, you know, uh, hitherto, uh, we, you know, so there's need for new translations as language changes. You mentioned that, Tim. Mm-hmm. So, and, and then there's just various translation philosophies. Word for word, thought for thought. So the ESV translation committee is trying to translate mostly word for word. The NIV is a little bit more thought for thought, but mostly word for word. So committees are, you know, on the spectrum of those those translation philosophies, word for word, thought for thought. Um, committees are translating, trying to take the most up to date way the English language is being used and translate the original text faithfully underneath those translation philosophies for a modern age. That's why that's ultimately why new translations come out. And in 150 years we'll need another if the Lord tarries, there will be need for a new uh, you know significant English translation because the English language will change. God's word does not change. How we use language does. And so we need to translate, uh, given the fact that the language changes. Yes, Natasha. If you understand, like, where your Bible falls on that spectrum, is it bad to use one end of the spectrum or another? I don't think so, no. Um, as, as BJ just said, the committees come together with different philosophies, but all of them... I'll call it with the exception of like the Jehovah's Witnesses and all that. They are trying to accurately translate God's word. They just have different methods or thoughts of how that should be done. Uh, I think finding a translation that benefits you of what's readable, what's understandable is by far the most important thing as long as it's within that spectrum. Um, some people love the NSB and swear by it because they feel comfortable with it while others love the NIV and there's no reason to you know for you to do elsewhere yes John and uh, the, the Jehovah's Witness version are there translations that we would find heretical uh, in that list that I, I don't know of any I, I'm I guess I could research and find out but I yeah I'm not a Chris um, if, if the King James came about because King James didn't like stuff in the Bible, did he change things? That, but, but yet we consider the King James a solid translation in Old English. Why? How does that fit? He didn't like some of the study notes that were coming out of the King James Version, right? Of I'll call it comments about how to interpret it was what set him off about 
uh, I think it was the Geneva Bible at the time. So he commissioned the King James to respond to that. I think the King James Version by itself was trying to be accurate to what they knew at the time. But again, they're looking at eight manuscripts versus 5,500 manuscripts much later in time than earlier. So, um, you know, I, I think the more modern translations actually are probably more accurate than the King James Version, although that still is a good version to, to work with. Chris? Um, where is something that I observed is that um, I noticed with the NIV, I started reading it around 1980. Um, and I noticed that the most recent version, I see a lot of language that has gone from, it, it's gone to more gender neutral kind of. And I just, maybe it's just an observation, maybe it's a question, I don't know, but is that something that's very well known? It's really weird. You know, I'll have memorized the verse before, and now I can just notice how they just say it in a way. Yeah. You know, how, how much, I mean, it seems like they're kind of, I don't know, I don't know if it's just uh, trying to be politically correct. How, how far can you go before it's like damaging to the meaning? Well, I think if, you, if, it, if you're noticing it begins to affect you, it's time to stop. Uh, the NIV has gone through several, several versions, and the latest ones are they're putting the general uh, gender-inclusive language in there. So it's changed over time because the people pushing it are, are wanting to push that different view. So um, I would say if you notice that, then I would say it's time to go somewhere else. So the last thing is, the main thing is as we look in the future, what our hope is is not translations, but one day all of us will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and there will be no need for any translations. That is our hope, is that um, as, as we come before the Lamb of God, all things will be clear. We will understand our Lord perfectly without any need of translations, and that is our hope. So um, that's it. Thank you for your attention, and we're on our next course seminar is going to be on seeing Jesus in the Old Testament.